We're going to take you live now to Moscow, Idaho, where we are getting an update in the murder of four University of Idaho students. An arrest has now been made in that case. Let's listen in. Thank you for coming today. Last night, in conjunction with the Pennsylvania State Police, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, detectives arrested 28-year-old Brian Christopher Kohlberger in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania on a warrant for murder of Ethan, Zena, Madison, and Kaylee. I want to personally thank these agencies for their assistance in this case. Koberger resides in Pullman, Washington, and is a graduate student at Washington State University. We will provide as much information as we can about the extradition to Idaho and the criminal process. However, Due to Idaho state law, we are limited in what information we can release today until Kohlberger has been has his initial appearance in Idaho court. I want to express my appreciation to our local community, the people of Idaho and those throughout our nation who provided information to help us investigate these murders has been very impressive. We've received over 19,000 tips and we've conducted over 300 interviews. To recap this case, on the evening of November 12th, Kaylee and Madison arrived home at about 1.56 a.m. after visiting a local bar and street food vendor. Ethan and Zana were at the Sigma Chi house before arriving home around 1.45 a.m. The two surviving roommates had also been in the community, but returned around 1 a.m. On the morning of November 13th, a 911 call was made at 11.58 a.m. reporting an unconscious person at the residence. The call came in, call came from inside the home from one of the surviving roommate's cell phones. Moscow police responded and found two victims on the second floor and two victims on the third floor. On November 17th, autopsies were conducted and the Latok County coroner confirmed the identity of the four victims. The cause and manner of death was homicide by stabbing. Some had defensive wounds and each had multiple, um, each had been stabbed multiple times. These murders have shaken our community and no arrest will ever bring back these young students. However, we do believe justice will be found through the criminal process. This was a very complex and extensive case. We developed a clear picture over time and we stand assured that the work was not, the, the work is not done, but be assured the work is not done. This has just started. Since November, we have remained laser focused on pursuing, pursuing every lead in our pursuit of justice for the victims and their families. I recognize the frustration with the lack of information that's been released. However, providing any details in this criminal investigation might have tainted the upcoming criminal prosecution or alerted the suspect of our progress. We will continue to provide as much information as we can as the process moves forward. Today, I want to specifically thank our dedicated Moscow Police Department detectives, patrol officers, 
the Idaho State Detectives, the Idaho State Troopers, and their crime lab technicians and scientists, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation for the resources and personnel to conduct this massive investigation. It was the dedication of them and the persistence and the numerous hours that led to an arrest. Fortunately, these highly skilled people worked together as a cohesive team to solve this case. I also want to thank our community and the nation. Over the past six weeks, I've been continually reminded of how much our community cares. Locally, public support has been exceptional with kind words, food for investigators, and letters of support. You will never know how much your words of encouragement help us through these trying times. I appreciate each of you and each of your kindness. Agencies and individuals from across the nation have reached out to us to express their support to this department. I'm reminded how our Moscow community, our families, and the nation has been impacted by this daily. Finally, I do want to thank our media partners for the help. You kept this in the uh, news. You helped us with tips. You kept things going, and we truly appreciate that. And you are the product of those 19,000 tips that we received, which is an impressive number. I would like to uh, invite Bill Thompson, the county prosecutor, up at this time. We've been listening to a press conference out of Moscow, Idaho. Um, you could hear the emotion there in the voice of uh, that law enforcement official talking about how they have finally secured an arrest in the murder of four college students, which has clearly shaken the sense of safety and security in that community. And, you know, we're learning a little bit more about about this suspect. And also, as we were alluding to earlier, there was this feeling, I think, in the community that the police were out of their depth, that they had no suspects, no one on the radar. You know, people had become kind of amateur sleuths trying to find information. But it turns out that this uh, suspect had actually been on their radar for some time and they were trying to put the pieces together. And meanwhile, um, the FBI had been kind of tracking, at least we know for the past four days, that the FBI was tracking his whereabouts and his location in Pennsylvania and keeping him under surveillance while they tried to get an arrest warrant put together. And the police in Moscow, Idaho, say that it was basically two things, that they say they have the DNA of this suspect at the scene and that also his Hyundai Elantra, uh, he owns a Hyundai Elantra that has now been towed from the scene of his arrest in Pennsylvania that it matches the make model description to a T of what they were searching for. The suspect's name is Brian Koberger, 28 years old. Uh, as they said, he lives in Pullman, Washington. Do we want to dip back into this, Nicole? Uh, well, the prosecutor is talking right now, so I might give a yeah. little more of some of the info. Let's you're listen kind of going over. to the prosecutor here briefly. Here also provides for no bond. We understand that he's scheduled to be back in court in Pennsylvania next Tuesday afternoon. And that a public defender has been appointed for him there. The process at this point is since he was arrested in another state, he has the opportunity to either waive extradition and return voluntarily to the state of Idaho, 
or if he prefers not to waive extradition, then we will initiate extradition proceedings through our governor's office. If we do that, it can take a while for him to get here. So again, I'm asking for your patience and understand that's just the way the system works. Once he gets here, uh, he'll have an initial appearance with our magistrate. They'll deal with issues such as making sure counsel is, uh, competent counsel is representing him, and the case will be scheduled for further hearings. Your primary source of factual information is going to be the court record, because that's what the Supreme Court says uh, we need to refer you to. So please pay attention to what's going on in court and have people there to watch and hear what's being said. Uh, as, as an attorney, myself, my office, we are limited on what we are allowed by the courts to say outside of the courtroom. So please just work with it. Finally, as the chief indicated, this is not the end of this investigation. In fact, this is a new beginning. You all now know the name of the person who has been charged with these offenses. Please get that information out there. Please ask the public, anyone who knows about this individual, to come forward, call the tip line, report anything you know about him to healthy investigators, and eventually our office and the court system understand fully everything there is to know about not only the individual, but what happened and why. Next, I'll introduce Colonel Ked Wells from the Idaho State Police. Thank you. Well, good afternoon. My name is Kedrick Wills. I serve as a director of the Idaho State Police and certainly want to express our appreciation for your attendance here today. These tragic murders took four young, vibrant lives from our community. Nothing we do can bring them back. The only thing that we can do in law enforcement to honor their memories that we know of is to bring this to a successful conclusion. This has been a very difficult time for the families, the university, the community, and the state of Idaho. However, it is also proven that communities come together in tough times. Certainly appreciate the support of the local community and our national audience that has been following us as we've worked, our investigators have worked through this case. I'm thankful also to you, the media partners, who have helped keep this case in the forefront that generates the tips and continues, will, we hope will continue to generate information that will help us to a conclusion of this proceeding. I'd like to express our appreciation on behalf of the Idaho State Police to Chief Fry, his leadership, and the entire Moscow Police Department for the way that they handled this from the very beginning. He directed the right people to the right, right positions that led us to this conclusion today. I've had the utmost confidence in this investigation and in Chief Fry as well as in Mr. Bill Thompson and the Latah County Prosecutor's Office who've been a great partner throughout this. Nothing has deterred the commitment of the investigators who've worked on this case, regardless of the organization they represent. It's been very trying and very difficult, as we know, as you know, that it has been on those investigators as they do the tedious work that they're so good at doing. The partnerships is what's led here as well. The partnerships between Moscow Police Department, the, I'd like to express our appreciation with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, specifically the special agent in charge out of the Salt Lake City Division, Dennis Rice, 
and also what the work that happened in the last 24 hours in in Pennsylvania with the arrest with the Pennsylvania State Police and Colonel Evan Chick with the Again, you're listening to the Dory Monson show on Cairo News Radio. We are listening live to a press conference out of Moscow, Idaho, where law enforcement officials, prosecutors are detailing the arrest of a suspect in the horrible slayings of four Idaho college students. Uh, the suspect in this case is 28-year-old Brian Christopher Koberger, who was arrested in Pennsylvania, as you just heard the prosecutor say, and we're going to hold tight on the press conference in the event that we get some questions from the media. We're hoping they allow the press to ask some questions and fill in some of the blanks here. Uh, but Brian Koberger was arrested by a SWAT team in Pennsylvania. It sounds like he has ties to both Pennsylvania and Washington State. He had just graduated in 2022 from a university in Pennsylvania where he studied criminology. And now we know, and it was confirmed today, uh, he is currently a Ph.D. student at WSU, lives in Pullman. His residence is about 10 miles from the murder scene. And he is also studying in Pullman criminology. Uh, And that seems to be a very significant detail. And I think there's going to be questions about how that played into uh, what happened allegedly in Idaho. You know, there's this um, uh, research paper that's been going around that he put out there as part of his criminology major. And it was sent to um, people who'd committed crimes And they were asked to respond as part of uh, research participation for his project. And in it, he was asking criminals um, to explain their decision making when committing a crime. In particular, he wrote, this study seeks to understand the story behind your most recent criminal offense with an emphasis on your thoughts and feelings throughout the experience. Now, that would be normal for a criminology student to want to understand, but obviously it takes on added significance now that he's been charged with the quadruple slang. Let's dip back in now to this press conference that continues live in Moscow, Idaho. Again, we're hoping that we'll uh, be able to hear some questions from the press. ...of the Moscow Police Department and their law enforcement partners. Vast and committed FBI resources brought important expertise. And right now you're listening to the voice of Scott Green. He's the president of the University of Idaho. Dedicated, highly competent personnel worked this case to arrest. This crime has nevertheless left a mark on our university, our community, and our state. While we cannot bring back Maddie, Kaylee, Zaina, and Ethan, we can thoughtfully and purposefully carry their legacy forward in the work that we do. Our students come first. And that was proven each and every day of this investigation. We are committed to safely delivering the college town atmosphere, campus experience, and high-touch quality education for which the University of Idaho is known. With time, we will heal. We will move forward together. And we will remain vandal strong. With that, I'd like to turn it back over to Chief Fry. Now we will open the floor to questions. However, I want to remind everyone, as Prosecutor Bill Thompson explained, any factual information regarding the arrest of Kohlberger is currently sealed per Idaho law and will not be released until he has appeared in an Idaho court. Please 
Formulate your questions accordingly. I recognize there are a lot of questions, and I will try to answer as many of them as I can. Lauren Patterson, uh, Northwest Public Broadcasting, Spokane Public Radio. I realize the records are sealed. I guess I'm not too familiar with how it works, but can you tell us what tip, what lead, what piece of evidence really led you all the way from Idaho to the suspect in Pennsylvania? As I've said in the past, that's part of our investigation, and uh, we won't be releasing that at this time. We, we will have those answers. We'll have them um, as soon as we can uh, make those available to you. Then a quick follow-up and a two-parter. Is our community safe, or is law enforcement still on the search for other suspects who might be involved in this attack? What I can tell you is we have an individual in custody who committed these um, horrible crimes, and... Um, I do believe our community is safe, but we still need to be vigilant, right? We still have talked about this in the past. We always need to be aware of our surroundings and make sure that uh, we're aware of what's going on. Hi, Chief. How soon into the investigation did police and law enforcement begin to spot Mr. Koberger as a potential suspect and a follow-up how many tips if you can say were specifically related to mr. Koberger um, to the tip part honestly I can't answer that question so I'm not even gonna speculate on that on the other part that's part of our investigation and it will come out um, I'd like the mic to please come right over here Thank you. Dana Griffin with NBC News. Can you confirm that Kohlberger asked whether or not anyone else had been arrested when he was in custody? I cannot confirm that or I'm not sure um, of that information, but that would still be a part of our investigation. Did CODIS initially return any hits on this guy? That's still part of our investigation. Um, that will come out. If we could get somebody over here, please. And then one final question. Is there any message to the online sleuths who slandered and harassed people who they believed were responsible there was a lot of speculation going on and we've always said from the very beginning that we're the official uh, message that comes out and to pay attention to what we we're putting out there to the press I'm Nancy Liu with News Nation and we were over at the house this morning and you told us that the remediation would begin today uh, it was suddenly stopped can you tell us why yes um, the house cleanup um, has been halted, and that came by a legal request from the court. Christina Corbin, Fox News. Uh, Chief, have you identified a motive? That is part of the investigation, and that will um, come out as we continue the investigation. But what we still ask is, is for people to continually send us things in the tip um, line. We are still looking for more information. We're still trying to build that picture, just like we have stated all along. Um, we're putting all the pieces together, and that will help. Chief Veronica Miracle with CNN. Any indication that the suspect knew the victims? That's part of the investigation as well. It won't be something that will come out at this point in time, but as we continue the investigation. All right, we're going to pull out of this because um, police in Idaho, they did give a detailed kind of timeline of events, but as you continue to hear him say, um, they are very, very restricted. He says by Idaho state law, I, admittedly, I'm not familiar with the law that he's referring to, but that um, he says that kind of specific information about motive, investigative tactics, evidence is sealed until um, 
the suspect has his first appearance in court. And so um, not a lot of information, obviously, that Moscow police are able to give reporters at the scene. But again, just sort of recapping what we know about this suspect. Um, Brian Koberger, he's 28 years old. He was arrested by a SWAT team in uh, Chestnut Hill Township, Pennsylvania, around 3 a.m. this morning. We do know, according to multiple reports, I mean, the Daily Mail, New York Post, most major outlets reporting that he had a white uh, Hyundai Elantra that was towed from the scene of his arrest this morning. And we know that Moscow police had identified that as a vehicle of interest. So that matches up. Uh, There was also reporting, and this is a really interesting detail, uh, reporting that some of the suspects' DNA was found at the scene. Uh, What's interesting about that is, to our knowledge, uh, Koberger has no prior arrests, according to the Daily Mail. Um, There are no public record hits for, for something that would result in his DNA being in the database. Now, that's not to say it wasn't. Sometimes you can have a job or something like that that results in in your DNA being collected. So we're not sure how they know that it's his DNA. And that's another piece of information that I'm sure they would say we can't release at this time. As for a possible motive, you know, what's what's off the bat um, odd about this case is here you've got a guy who uh, graduated earlier this year from a college in Pennsylvania where he studied criminology and he's currently a PhD student in criminology at WSU. Um, and so he clearly has some sort of you know interest in um, the criminal justice system. And obviously that wouldn't otherwise be unusual. There are thousands of criminology students in the country that don't allegedly commit quadruple murders. But you do have to wonder, you know, there's been some reporting on some of his um, – Uh, work as part of his criminology major where he was doing uh, some outreach to criminals to ask them specifically the thoughts and feelings and emotions that were going through their minds when they committed a crime. And so obviously that stands out. But then I wanted to read the New York Post. Again, I think at a moment like this, when you've had this case that has baffled a community, it has been obviously so sad and so serious You just try to take the pieces that you know to try to come up with, I think, what could have happened in the absence of information. Um, Sometimes you can get there. Sometimes you can't. But uh, his aunt told The New York Post that he had some eccentricities that really stood out to to the family that were weird. Um, She told The New York Post that he obsessively forced his family to buy new pots and pans that hadn't touched meat. Because in his in, in her words, he was, quote, above and beyond being vegan. And he forced his family to buy new pots and pans, his aunt says, that had never been used to cook meat before. So it's just like these kind of weird details that are coming out about the guy. And as Nicole and I were discussing earlier, it's one of those. And again, you know, the guy is going to get his day in court, uh, as you heard um, from prosecutors. They are awaiting extradition. So it could be some time before he's back in Idaho. But again, it's one of those cases where at first look at the guy, I mean, you look at him and he looks like almost like it's not bothersome to him for what he's just been arrested for. Just this complete blank emotion on his face. Uh, So some other, uh, you know, in in instances like this, and, and I'll wrap this up, I think that 
it's what you don't know just as much as what you do know in the moment. Uh, And clearly you heard reporters trying to get to the bottom of it. But some of the biggest questions are unanswered. Uh, If this is the guy, again, did he know these four victims? He lived 10 miles from them. Of course, they lived on the Idaho side of the border and he on the Washington side of the border. Had they had any prior interaction with him prior to the murders? Another question you heard reporters ask, was there anyone else believed to be involved in the homicides? That is a question they weren't willing to answer just yet. And then, of course, it comes down to motive. Did he know them? If not, what would the motive have been for this crime? But I can say um, a sigh of relief. I mean, think collectively when this news came out across the country, whenever you're talking about four college kids murdered in their sleep, in their beds, uh, it's a horrifying prospect for any parent, certainly for the community there in Moscow, Idaho, and across in Pullman. Uh, And so, again, an arrest made in that case. And I know that additional details will be coming out in the days ahead as we await extradition of the suspect. And that has been the fastest 15 minutes in the news. Much more ahead on The Dory Monson Show. Brandy Cruz filling in. Monson Show, Brandy Cruz filling in. We'll continue to uh, monitor developments out of Moscow. And I'm sorry, I, I was pronouncing it wrong. I was told by some folks in the text line, Moscow, Moscow. So now I uh, know. I, you can tell I'm not a Northwest native, or perhaps I would have known that. But, um, you know, obviously a, a really good development, a positive development in the case of those uh, uh, four murdered Idaho college students. But we still have so many details uh, that we're hoping to glean once that suspect makes his first appearance in court. We're talking in the big lead today about the fact that you do have this, uh, if you look nationwide at major cities, fewer homicides in 2022 than we had in 2021 and 2020. So you had this spike in 2020 and 2021. Uh, There were a variety of reasons. I was reading a New York Times article earlier that tried to peg it to all sorts of weird things. Uh, But uh, Washington state, unfortunately, is not meeting that trend. Uh, Seattle has more homicides in 2022 so far than 2021. Uh, Spokane does as well. And that's disappointing. And so you really have to get to the bottom of why is that? Is it because we have the lowest number of police officers per capita in the entire nation? Is it because of some of our policies around uh, drug use, drug abuse, um, lax uh, punishments for uh, even violent criminals and for juveniles, etc.? We have had a couple stories this week of random attacks, which to me is like that's everyone's fear, right? Um, Just yesterday, there was a woman who was hit across the head with a rock in downtown Seattle and uh, robbed at a bus stop. And then the day before that, there was a story of this young man who had just been jogging and he was somebody jumped out and stabbed him. And as far as we know, that was a random attack. And then in the days before that, there have been uh, reports of at least three um, uh gropings on jogging trails again um super random stuff so uh, our friends over at fox 13 uh, spoke to some people who are obviously worried about jogging i mean the guy who was stabbed was on queen anne he was in the queen anne neighborhood which is one of the safest neighborhoods in the city uh and they tell fox 13 that they at least need to use the buddy system when they go out 
It's really sad. I don't feel like I want to walk down here by myself anymore. I don't think I feel comfortable jumping on my own now. Um, I'm pretty surprised because I haven't felt personally unsafe, but um, that is pretty concerning. They spoke to another man who said he carries pepper spray with him. We also recently got pepper sprays. I do not know, you know, like whether it would help, would have helped in this situation or not. But, you know, at least psychologically it makes us feel a little safer. Yeah, pepper spray would absolutely help. I mean, it's better to have pepper spray than nothing. Yeah, I mean, you and I were talking last night about where uh, we're going to a birthday party and where to have dinner. And mm-hmm. you said, let's not go downtown. Let's go to maybe South Lake Union or something like that. Yeah. Because... Because of the safety thing, but it's moving into these other areas and and it's, you know, it's people that you would not think would be attacked at a in the daylight even. Right. And I, yeah, we were trying to figure out where to go for dinner, but it's kind of a bummer that those things have to factor into it. You know, we are, we're two women um, and, you know, one of the restaurants I was thinking of going to was in Belltown. I was like, yeah. Maybe not. Maybe we don't right. go to Belltown. And so because our friend's birthday party is um, in the downtown area. And so we're like, let's find a place. But it's like you got to choose it based on neighborhood. And then, you know, like I said, this jogger was on Queen Anne. It's like there really is no neighborhood that hasn't had these issues. And it uh, feels like it's been like this for a while, but it hasn't been forever. Like there was a time no. where we didn't have to worry about things like we that. We used to. And I can't remember if you and I were friends yet, um, but our mutual friend, Jessman McIntyre, she was one of my first friends when I came um, to the city. And we used to go down to Pike Place Market, to Post Alley, to Kell's Irish Pub. Oh, yeah. Like every weekend, you know, trying to find good men. <laughs> and they had they always had live music. It didn't work until you got out yeah. of the city. <laughs> yes. They always had live music. And we had so much fun. I cannot picture myself doing that now. No. No, mm-hmm. not unless it was the middle of the day or something, but definitely not at night. Um. And so it's just interesting to see it has changed. For those of us who have been here long enough, it absolutely has changed. Uh, Fox 13 spoke to um, a woman who works nearby where this uh, jogger was stabbed. The fact that this happened at 845 in the morning greatly concerns all of us. Yeah, well, I guess that negates what I said. I'd go to Kells, you know, nothing against Kells, by the way. I don't want to scare people from going to Kells. I'm just saying we used to go out at night. And that was our that was our hot spot that we go to. Uh, another resident telling Fox 13 things just keep getting worse. There's been more um, vandalism, uh, breaking into cars. We're starting to see a bunch of RVs, you know, up on Nickerson out there with chop shops set up, and you know this area here, um, tents along the cut, you know, that linger for several days. And they say they realize there is a police shortage in the city, but they're not sure if that would make a difference. Maybe more police in the forest would be great, but. I don't know if that would actually solve a problem or not. So getting to the meat of this now, uh, Fox 13 also spoke to Seattle Police Chief Adrian Diaz as part of its reporting on that uh, and asked him basically, hey, I mean, you have these random attacks. What are you going to do about it? We know that there's an increase in homelessness. We know that there's an increase in people in behavioral crisis. Chief Adrian Diaz says SPD is working to identify areas where people are living in RVs and tents and identify the level of violence around them. Yeah, and I think I'm kind of surprised that Fox and Chief Diaz acknowledge that because in Seattle, I think there's this real refusal to acknowledge the criminal element that comes along with the transient population. And this is just factual. I mean, when you look at shootings, I believe it was in 2021 in the city of Seattle, of all causations of shootings, be it gang violence, uh, domestic violence, the the causal tie to homelessness was the biggest factor. And and that could mean that um, 
the the homeless individual was a victim, but the uh, proximity of a shooting to a homeless encampment or involving uh, a homeless individual, either the suspect or the victim, that was the law. It accounted for the largest percentage percentage of shootings in the city. And so, you know, this I think there for a long time has been this refusal out of some like misplaced feeling of wokeness or whatever that you couldn't talk about the fact that, yes, there is a criminal element that comes along with a large transient population. These are people who are living on the streets, trying to survive. They're very vulnerable, vulnerable themselves. Uh, and so I'm glad to hear Chief Diaz at least acknowledge like, yeah, we know there's an issue with homelessness, people in a, the throes of a behavioral health crisis. A lot of these stories we've had of like repeat offenders in Seattle or like you'll remember the guy who I think he like it was uh, at Westlake Station, maybe where he like threw an old lady down the stairs. These are people who have been in and out of the mental health system because their the laws in the state and with their mental health issue, they're just cycling in and out. That's why I don't think that cops, more cops is the only answer. It's part of what can be a solution, but it's going to have to be making drugs illegal again, actually holding right. people accountable when they commit crimes and and not letting people live the way we're letting them live in the city. Yeah, 100%. I agree with that. I mean, I do think we need more police officers because our 911 response times have, have really suffered as a result. And then also, I think you can't do as much proactive out there. If you have so few officers where they are spending their entire day responding to 911 calls, mm-hmm. they can't be out on the beat. They can't be walking down 3rd Avenue. And that presence can really, really help. It does. Um, but I agree with you. I mean, the last numbers I saw on this were SPD officers responding to like more than 10,000 calls of people in crisis every year. So they're out responding to homeless camp calls of crisis, you know, people who are suicidal, mentally ill person on the streets. And then you've got the progressives who are like, we don't want police in homeless camps. The police don't want to be in the homeless camps either. They don't want to be doing that work. But it's not their fault that we have 13,000, 14,000 people in this state who are living on the streets many of them suffering from either a mental health issue or drug addiction issue. And so we put all these problems that as a state have gotten much worse over the last decade. We throw them on the lap of lap of police officers. And then you complain with how police officers handle the situation. So it's like police are to blame for everything. And you can't look in the mirror at the state level or at the city level and say, gosh, we've let it get so bad that now police are having to deal with people who are in the throes of a mental health crisis. How did we get to that point? Uh, Chief Diaz says he does say that the public uh, is really stepping up when it comes to some of these uh, attacks and cases and trying to help them um, solve cases and move cases forward. From around August, we're seeing this actually dip in violent crime. People might end up feeling like there's there's that level of crime and the level of fear, but it actually helps us actually solve these cases, you know, by actually working with community. Yeah, and uh, here's my thing about that. Sorry. Chief Diaz, I've known you for a long time, uh, but you're not immune from criticism from me, sir. I hate the conversation around looking at minor patterns in in dips and ebbs and flows in crime. Like if you're talking about a whole year, year over year, like we look at the homicide rate in Seattle, it's up 2020, 2021, 2022. That's significant. You can look at a trend. But I'm sorry. When you say that there has been a, a dip since August in violent crime, like I, I, and that's not enough data to really go off of. And also, as I've said repeatedly, crime is relative. Seattle's homicide rate really is not quote unquote bad comparatively to other major cities in the U.S., but it's bad for us. And that's all that matters. And when someone does not feel safe in a neighborhood where they've always felt safe, that's problematic. And all it takes is, I mean, one unfortunate crime to change the trajectory of the city. I mean, we talked about this yesterday, the um, Amazon worker, this female engineer 
who was hit across the back of the head with a baseball bat at random in downtown Seattle. That attack, that that single attack factored into Amazon's decision making when it came to whether they were or were not going to bring their employees back to work in downtown. When Amazon doesn't bring its employees back to work, what happens? The small business ecosystem around Amazon, the laundromats, the bars, the restaurants, the doggy daycares, they all suffer as a result. And what happens then? Seattle's entire economy suffers as a result. And when you don't have Amazon back, when you don't have the small businesses that are successful, when you have people who are boarding up their storefronts, then Seattle becomes a place that is unlivable and unvisitable. And so even when you have, let's say, a dip in violent crime from August to now, which I, again, do not believe is enough of a data set to really make a determination, it doesn't matter if people still feel unsafe and it doesn't matter when you're having these really terrifying, random, violent attacks that can change someone's perception of an entire city. All right, Brandy Cruz filling in for Dory Monson. Much more ahead on The Big Show. Welcome back to The Dory Monson Show. Brandy Cruz filling in. Uh, I got to have this video. So, um, and Nicole, can you bump, bump it up to the top? That audio? Sure oh, wait, I found it. I found it. Okay. okay, I got it. So I hear all the time in Seattle, you know, first of all, I, I have a Twitter account, which I frequently, routinely regret uh, in Seattle, because in Seattle, I'm just right wing, which I think is funny. But um, and of course, you know, oh, you're friends with Dory Monson. And, you know, Dory gets vilified in Seattle so much for his very reasonable views, a very intolerant left in Seattle. And I get, you know, a lot and I don't know Dory does, too, of oh, it's fear mongering. You know, you're just fear mongering over all these because Dory will dare talk about a crime that actually happened. They're like, oh, fear mongering, which is why I thought it was very interesting. I was sent um, a video. So I'm just going to set the stage and I'll play play this for you. So this is on Broadway Avenue East in Seattle. And there um, is somebody sitting in their car. They're clearly like parked on the side of the street. And so they get out their phone and start uh, filming because. Some random homeless guy um, appears to be assaulting someone on video. There's a passerby who gets in, tries to intervene. So this guy, again, I set this up just to play for you. This guy is sitting in his car taping this on his phone, taping this homeless man randomly assaulting someone. Meanwhile, what's on the radio in this guy's car? He's listening to the Dory Monson show, and he happens to be listening to Dory Monson discussing two people wrestling over a gun. So it's like this very meta moment. Maybe he was a little high. Um, He was maybe 5'5". If you listen really close, you can hear the homeless guy, these good Samaritans trying to kind of wrestle this homeless guy outside the window as you can hear Dory inside. Maybe 120 pounds. So he looked like somebody you could overpower. So then, so explain what happened. So you wrestled for the gun, and, and then how did things continue to go sideways? Um, so as I, I finally got control of oh. So you get, the guy pulls up, he sees that this, he's listening to Dory, as a good citizen of Seattle would do. Listening to Dory talk about Dory's on the. Did you figure out what interview that was, by the way? You know, I was trying to figure it out. I think it was best of at 
Thanksgiving. Okay. He was talking to a guy who had wrestled a gun away from someone. And so, you know, good Seattle citizen listening to Dory Monson talk about the very real crime crisis. And then outside the door, what does he see? Some homeless guy randomly assaulting someone. Apparently the homeless guy had like a syringe in his hand. And then you've got a passerby that's like trying to break it up and tackle him. And so just, there's yeah. also a lot of passerbys that do nothing. That do nothing, which is not a surprise in Seattle, unfortunately. And I actually read that because this got posted on social media. I read that the um, the passerby, the good Samaritan who jumped in to help, um, might have been a, a real change vendor. And I just looked up the picture of the real change vendor they say it is because oh, it kind of looks like him. So Real Change, of course, is a newspaper sold in Seattle by either homeless individuals or formerly homeless individuals. And you'll see them and they say Real Change. They got a paper and you can give them money. Uh, and they wear these very distinctive vests to you know denote them as a true Real Change um, vendor. And yeah, sure enough, in this video, the Good Samaritan who's trying to wrestle down this homeless guy from assaulting someone – appears to have one of those real change vests on. So good for him. Before someone says, oh, it's an attack on the homeless that's unsolicited. Well, is it still if it was a real change vendor who is uh, trying to help in that instance? So I just thought that was all very, very meta. Uh, Let's see. And yeah, Dory's uh, clearly a fear monger because he's daring to talk about crime on the radio as a listener watches crime unfold at the same time outside his car door. Uh, Have you guys, when's the last time you went to the movies? Andrew, when's the last time you went to a legit movie theater? It must have been over four years ago. Okay, Nicole. So I did end up seeing Elvis in the theater. Uh, Okay. I don't know. Like six months ago, maybe? Summer? I'd have to look at when this movie came out, but I took Mike and I went on a date. Downtown Seattle, probably the last time he ever wanted to Mm -hmm. go there. And we went to the little movie theater down there, and uh, we went to um, The Grinch. But I thought it was like one of those, you know, because I've watched a Grinch movie before where it's like real human actors, but this turned out... Jim Carrey? This turned out to be like a cartoon one. It was the cartoon one probably last year or the year before that they came up with? Definitely more than a year ago. It was new uh, animation, though. Yeah, but we got in there and we're sitting there like five minutes in. I'm like, oh, this is for children. (laughs) Now we're on our hot date night. Uh, But apparently movies, uh, theaters are not doing well. And that doesn't surprise me because of the pandemic, right? I mean, for a long time, movie theaters weren't open. But it sounds like there's a lot more going on here. I mean, the... um, So if you compared it to like 2019, so last year of gross box office uh, uh, revenue pre-pandemic, the total number for the industry was $11.2 So if you adjusted that for inflation and it hadn't changed this year, it would have been $13 But instead, the 2022 gross for domestic uh, movie theaters was $7.5 So like half Mm -hmm. where it should be. But also you see... I don't even know that it's just like that's an outdated model because I think there's still a lot of people who like going to the movies, but you can they release it in so many different ways now. Sometimes it's, it's oh go ahead oh you don't even have a ch- sometimes you don't even have a chance to see it in theater because it'll be out in the theater for a few weeks and then it goes straight to HBO Max or whatever it is and so I feel like it doesn't people used to used to have like two months to go see a movie in the theater maybe more and now it's gone before you even realize it's out and people don't see commercials all the time people uh, are watching netflix things like that so you don't even know when movies come out until they get talked about later and then you've already missed it so i feel like there uh, 
COVID put a nail in the coffin of theaters, maybe. It's going to be kind of like drive-in theaters where they just slowly disappear. And eventually there's a few that are classic, you know, spots to visit, but it's not in every town anymore. I mean, I still feel like there really is nothing, especially with a movie like Top Gun, which I saw at home, Top Gun 2. Mm-hmm. And um, Mike went and saw it by himself at a theater when we were back home in Fargo and I had stuff to do. But um, I, there's no, it's not the same. Like seeing it in a theater with that big screen, the surround sound is a totally different experience. Watching a movie like that on your couch is just a letdown. All right. Brandy Cruz filling in for Dory Monson. The big lead at two is coming up next. And I think we might be joined by John Curley. Better.